Well, thank you very much, Steve, for uh, very kind words. Um, I am thrilled to have the opportunity to be here and meet uh, many of you who are a part of Grace Bible Church and to uh, hear the reports that we regularly hear coming back down uh, to our part of Southern California reporting on what the Lord is doing here in your church. I, I just couldn't be more thankful and more blessed and more thrilled. I was saying to someone earlier that uh, I'm like John who said in uh, 3 John verse 4 that he had no greater joy than to see his children walking in the truth. And I kind of feel like the men who come through the seminary in a sense are spiritual children that I've had uh, the opportunity uh, to, to know and to be a part of and uh, to see them walking in the truth and others following in the truth is, is, um, is what energizes me and makes me grateful. I live for the truth. I mean, it's a simple thing. If you ask me what my, my uh, view of life is, I just live for the truth. It's all about the truth. It's about knowing the truth, loving the truth, preaching the truth, uh, every way possible, writing the truth, uh, heralding the truth, raising up men who are devoted to the truth. The most important thing in the world is the truth of God. Divine truth is the most important commodity in the world. It's in scarce supply, sad to say. I was sharing with our elder board on Thursday night that uh, um, just generally speaking, the church, I'm talking about the church, let's say the evangelical church, is, uh, is ignorant of the truth. They're ignorant of sound doctrine. And the reason the church is generally ignorant of sound doctrine is because pastors are also generally ignorant of sound doctrine. Uh, there doesn't seem to be the premium on the truth that there should be. People are more interested in style, more interested in methodology, more interested in uh, technique and all of that than they are in the truth. Uh, I just came back from a, a, a very interesting kind of historic trip through Scotland, and I was reminded again when I was there, uh, seeing all the things I saw and going back over Scottish doctrinal history, history of the church, how uh, if you go back into the uh, 17th century, 16th century all theologians were pastors. All theologians were pastors. The theologians were in the church. If you were a pastor, you were a theologian. You were, you were an expert in the Word of God. They knew Hebrew. They knew Greek. They knew theology. They could read Latin. They could write in their own language as well as in Latin. They thought deeply about spiritual matters and about doctrine. After the Enlightenment, when the church came under assault and under attack, the, the church was being criticized by those who called themselves scholastics. There was a great divorce, and um, scholarship removed itself from the church, ended up in the universities and seminaries, the ivory towers. And the legacy of that is that now we have this world called academia, where the scholars and the intellectuals and the theologians are. And pastors have been separated from serious theology, serious doctrine. It's a great tragedy. It's a historic reality that several hundred years ago, scholarship left the church or began to leave the church. And now, you don't even think of a pastor as a serious theologian. And that is indeed tragic because that trickles down uh, to the ignorance of the people. Pastors have become brokers of somebody else's theology. They become middle managers who, uh, who uh, are more concerned with uh, methodologies and ideas, entrepreneurial schemes, than they are with theology, sound doctrine. I have been given an assignment by uh, Steve, and I'm grateful for it, 
to speak to you on one of the great doctrines of, of Scripture, the perseverance of the saints. And uh, th this is the foundation of all that is steadfast in our Christian lives. Nothing would be steadfast if we didn't have a salvation that was steadfast. If this could change, then everything changes. But if salvation cannot change, and if it is steadfast, then everything is built on that foundation. The year was 1644. The place was Westminster Abbey in London, and the room was called the Jerusalem Room. The greatest theological minds and biblical scholars in England gathered together. They were all pastors. The famous Puritans were there, gathered with lords and commoners to spend five years of intense study and discussion to produce a statement of sound doctrine, a statement that was true to the Bible and true to the gospel. They were led in those five years by a hundred men who were called divines because they, they interacted with that which was divine, the Word of God. There were names like Thomas Goodwin and James Usher and J.B. Lightfoot and Samuel Rutherford, William Twiss and Jeremiah Burroughs. Five years later, by 1649, they had completed what became the most important Christian creed called the Westminster Confession of Faith. In that creed, there is a statement on the security of salvation. They accurately referred to it as the perseverance of the saints. In a brief and unambiguous part of that confession, they wrote this, "'They whom God has accepted in His beloved Son, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from a state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved.'" End quote. One of the great statements of the Westminster Confession and an accurate reflection of what Scripture teaches. Scripture is full of promises regarding the eternality of salvation or the perseverance of the saints. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Or even the familiar John 3, 16 and 18, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He who believes in him is not judged. Or John 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, said our Lord, and I will lose none of them, but raise him up on the last day. Or John 10, no one is able to pluck them out of my hand or my Father's hand. There are many more such testimonies that you would be familiar with. The Apostle Paul writes unmistakable words at the end of First Thessalonians when he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, he also will bring it to pass. 
or the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ is Lord. The one who called you will bring you to the end. That's what those passages are saying, or the familiar words that conclude the epistle of Jude, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forevermore. Amen. The God who called you will bring you to glory. That's what all of those passages are saying. Or the words of our Lord Jesus in the Gospel of John, the water that I give, if you drink, you will never thirst. So the Westminster divines recognized these and many other passages like them. And they recognized that the Bible promises a salvation that is steadfast, that cannot fail, that cannot fail. It doesn't mean that Christians will not fail. Even the Apostle Paul looks at himself and says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? It doesn't mean that Christians do not fail. It does not mean that Christians do not fail in serious ways fail in their obedience, fail in the pursuit of virtue, fail in loving as they should and serving as they should and obeying as they should. So the Westminster divines knew that, and they then wrote this, Nevertheless, believers may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of their means of preservation, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves." End quote. In other words, perseverance doesn't mean perfection. Perseverance doesn't mean sinlessness. We often refer to the perseverance of our eternal life as eternal security. And it is an eternal security, but that is not how it is presented in Scripture. It is more accurate to say the perseverance of the saints than it is to talk about eternal security. Eternal security is something outside of us. Perseverance of the saints is something that is a part of us. To bring it down to a passage in John chapter 8, our Lord said, whoever continues in my word is a real disciple. That's continuation. That's perseverance. And that's how the Bible defines our eternal life. It is a persevering life. To speak of the security of the believer is, is not wrong in itself, but the other expression is more careful and more accurate. It is not true 
that someone is secure, no matter how much he may fall into sin and unfaithfulness. It is not true that someone is secure if he turns to deny Christ. A believer may sin, a believer will sin, a believer may sin seriously, a believer may sin repeatedly, but he will not abandon himself to sin, he will not come under the dominion of sin, he will not lose faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not become a denier of the gospel and of Christ. He will not become an unbeliever. Nor will a true believer shun holiness and fully embrace sin. That's impossible. 1 John 3.10 says he cannot do that because the seed of God remains in him. A true believer will not fail to love the Lord may not love the Lord as he should, but he will not fail to love the Lord. A true believer will not fail to love others. He may not love others as he should, but he will not fail to love others. What about that person who professes to be a Christian, turns away, walks away, denies Christ, denies the gospel, shows no love for the Lord, no love for the believers, no love for the church, no love for the Word of God? The Bible clearly explains that in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they never were of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out from us that it might be made manifest they never were of us. If that happens, then that person never was a true believer. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because our Lord said in Matthew 13 that the, the wheat would be oversown by tares that would be, in large measure, indistinguishable and couldn't even be separated until the judgment when the angels of God are sent to separate. Any idea of salvation that leaves out security is a distortion of the truth. But any idea of security that leaves out perseverance is also a distortion of the truth. You are not secure if you do not persevere. Perseverance is the evidence of transformation. I have written many books through the years on this subject. Gospel according to Jesus, the gospel according to the apostles. I've written books, Truth War, Shame to the Gospel, The Jesus You Can't Ignore, trying to communicate to the evangelical world that people who turn their back on the truth and walk away never were believers. Because true salvation causes people to receive a life from God that cannot die. And so it is manifest in perseverance. It isn't really about us. Let me be very simple. If I could lose my salvation, if it were possible, I would lose it. Did you hear that? If it were possible to lose my salvation, I would lose it. It is impossible for me to reach up from my depravity 
and lay claim to salvation on my own. That is a work of the Holy Spirit, right? I can't save myself. Neither can I keep myself saved. The, the same human inability that prevents me from being saved apart from divine intervention prevents me from being secure apart from divine intervention. So I'll say it again. If I could lose my salvation, I would. And so would you. So would you. I told the people at Grace Church last Sunday that there is a survey that was recently done by the Ligonier folks and Lifeway, the Southern Baptist uh, book division, on what, what they concluded was that the biggest heresy in America, the biggest heresy in America, the single most dominating heresy in America, they did this survey, and just to give you the sum of it, the conclusion was that the biggest heresy in America is that people are basically good. Seventy percent of the people surveyed by Ligonier and Lifeway said people are, they do bad things, but they're basically good. That people have in themselves the power on their own to turn to God. And when they try to turn to God and do good, God meets them halfway and does the rest. That, that is a complete misunderstanding of human depravity. To, to make it simple, all your righteousness is what? Filthy rags. We are both unable and unwilling to be saved or to keep ourselves, ourselves saved. The only way we can be saved is by the power of God reaching into the darkness. And God, who said, let there be light, has to say to our hearts, let there be light, so that the light of the glory of the gospel of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ can be manifest in us. People say sometimes to me, why are you a Calvinist? And, and I say, it's pretty simple. It's pretty simple. You either believe that people in their fallen sinful condition can choose salvation, reach up to God on their own, or they can't. If you believe they can, then you have a problem. Because there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks after God. Because everybody in the human race is dead in trespasses and sin, blinded by their own sin, double-blinded by Satan, hopeless, helpless, alienated from the life of God. And in that condition, there is nothing in them, there is no faculty in them to reach up to God. So if salvation can only occur when God reaches down, you have now established the foundation of Reformed theology. It's a work of God. All the rest becomes consequential. So I say again, only God can save us. Nicodemus says to Jesus, uh, how, how does this work, John 3? How can a man be born again? He's talking metaphorically. He gets it. How can this happen? And Jesus didn't say to him, oh, uh, pray this prayer. Jesus said to him, hmm, the Spirit blows where He wills, when He wills, upon whom He wills. 
So, even Jesus was a Calvinist? This is a mighty work of the Holy Spirit. So the question about perseverance is, what kind of salvation is this? And if it is life that he gives us, and it is eternal life that he gives us, then we now possess something that can never die. It never was about me. I didn't write my name in God's book. He wrote it before the foundation of the world. I didn't pull myself up by my own ingenuity and my own cleverness and my own wisdom. By His power are we in Christ, so that no man can boast. He picked me up out of my darkness and blindness and gave me life, and the life that He gave me perseveres. It is eternal life. There are a lot of texts that we could look at and think about in this regard. But I want to pick out one. Turn in your Bible, if you will, to 1 Peter Chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. Since I didn't start when I was supposed to, I don't have to finish when I was supposed to. Is that how it works, Steve? Amen. Uh, you know, I don't want to preach a, a short sermon because that will make it hard for Steve in the future because I know he <laughs> preaches long ones. 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> Verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and though you do not see Him now but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Just reading that is an awe-inspiring experience, amazing experience. Now, this is written by Peter. This is written by Peter. He is the right person to write about perseverance, wouldn't you think? If any New Testament person was ever prone to failure, it was Peter. It was Peter. He is the man who wrote these words and personally experienced the security of his salvation, the perseverance of eternal life in him. In fact, based upon the gospel record, we would say that Peter was more like Judas than anybody else. In fact, you wouldn't have been able to tell them apart until the end. Peter was impetuous, erratic, selfish, vacillating, weak, cowardly, hot-headed, selfish. On several occasions, he invited strong rebukes from the Lord, none more severe than the Lord's rebuke in Matthew 16, 23, get behind me, Satan. He said about Judas, one of you is a devil, but he called Peter Satan. 
And oh, by the way, that low point to be called Satan occurred almost immediately after the high point of Peter's experience when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. One moment he speaks from God, the next moment he speaks from Satan. Peter is proof that a true believer can stumble but not fall because he has been given an eternal life. And that life principle that is eternal powers through everything. With all his weaknesses, he never fell. Judas did. The criteria then by which a true believer is distinguished is not a past event, it is not a past prayer, it is not walking an aisle, it is not making a profession, it is not being baptized, it is not serving in the church or attending the church. The criteria by which a true believer is distinguished is the features that belong to eternal life continue to be manifest. The features that belong, the elements that belong, the characteristics that belong to eternal life continue to be manifest. In the anticipation of Peter's worst failure, and he had many, but he had one night that was really disastrous. In anticipation of that, in Luke chapter 22, the night that Jesus was betrayed, our Lord gave Peter insight into the -the behind-the-scenes battle for Peter's own soul. Now listen, when I say you are given an eternal life that powers through everything and brings you to final glory, that's the perseverance of the saints. I want to say that that's not automatic. That happens because the Trinity is engaged in sustaining that life. In um, Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, he called him by his old name because he was acting like his old self, Simon, Simon, Satan's demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan demanded permission from the Lord to go after Peter and sift him like wheat. Do you know any other occasion in the Bible where that happened? Job. Paul, who was given a messenger from Satan to buffet him, to humble him. There are times when the Lord allows Satan to go after his children. Why? To prove that salvation cannot be broken. He wants permission to sift you like we. I would have said, well, you said no, right, Lord? You told him, no, no, no. <laughs> no, the Lord said, I told him, yes, Absolutely. And here's the solution, verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Do you ever hear about the intercession of Christ? There is an example of it. What does it mean? It means that Satan can come at us with everything he's got and the Lord is praying for us that our faith will not fail. And the Lord prays according to the will of the Father, and His prayers are always answered, right? 
Romans chapter 8 says the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered and always prays according to the will of the Father. So you have Christ in heaven praying that your faith will not fail. You have the Spirit in you praying that your faith will not fail. And your faith itself is an eternal kind of life. And under the power of the Father who gave you that life and the Spirit who prays for you and the Son who prays for you, that life is sustained to glory. Peter thought he could hold on by himself. He he certainly overestimated his ability. Um, Verse 33, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Really? I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied me three times. You've denied that you even know me. And he denied, and he denied more than three times, but on three separate occasions at three different locations, he denied multiple times and even cursed. Isn't that enough to lose your salvation? Oh, by the way, the leading Bible professor at Westmont College, who's been there over 30 years was just heralded at an event to celebrate the end of his teaching career, and he wrote a paper on Peter the apostate and said he was nothing but a Judas. Peter's faith did not fail because he was the possessor of a life that cannot fail, And because that's the Father's gift to him, and the Son intercedes for him, and the Spirit intercedes for him. You get a picture of this intercession in John chapter 17, verse 11, in that high priestly prayer, I'm no longer in the world, verse 11, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Father, keep them. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be dying on the cross. He knows there's going to be a separation. When I'm not able to keep them, in those three hours of darkness when he was bearing the weight of the wrath of God, he says, Father, keep them. I have guarded them up to now. Keep them. Keep them. Down in verse 15, he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them, protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. Everybody who comes after them, keep them, guard them, that they all may be one, that they all may come to glory. That's, that's the intercessory work of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Christ's intercession guarantees our eternal salvation. As I said, the intercession of the, of the Holy Spirit guarantees our eternal salvation. Romans 8, 28, 6 to 28. And the Father's purpose guarantees our salvation, whom He predestined, He justified, whom He justified, He glorified. Believers have been chosen, called, justified, sanctified, and will be glorified 
and nobody will be lost. Now back to 1 Peter. So says Peter, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. Incredible statement. Say it again. If it was up to me, I'd fail. If it was up to me, I would never be saved. If it was up to me, I wouldn't keep my salvation. It's not up to me. This is how God has always dealt with His elect. Jeremiah thirty-two forty, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. That's an everlasting covenant. That's an eternal salvation. There are no dropouts. No dropouts. You say, what about the warnings in Hebrews? What about those warnings? Those are warnings to people who haven't put their trust in Christ as to what's going to happen. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not mean that anybody who quote-unquote accepted Jesus, prayed a prayer, is secure no matter what their life is like. How do we know the difference between Peter and Judas? Judas went out and hanged himself. Peter repented with tears. So it's appropriate that Peter is the writer here. Now, just a a couple of words about those to whom he's writing. He's writing, as verse 1 tells us, to aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen, the elect, according to God's predetermined knowledge. He's writing to scattered believers in Asia Minor who are facing, by the way, horrible persecution. First Peter is all about persecution. These believers feared for their own lives. And here's the, here's the scenario. The persecution is severe. It is unjust. They are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. They are being persecuted because of their proclamation of the gospel. They are aliens in the world. They have to know that. They are citizens of heaven. He goes on to say they are a kind of royal aristocracy. They are residents of a heavenly kingdom. They are living stones in God's temple. They are a holy priesthood. They are a people who who belong to God as God's own possession. And they're under this massive assault that literally threatens their lives. Peter is writing this to say you don't need to fear the threats, you don't need to fear the intimidation, you don't need to be troubled by the persecution because you have a life that will not, cannot fail. You are protected by God. So instead of of giving them some kind of letter of sympathy and saying, I feel your pain, I, I know it's hard, hang in there, Um, Instead of commiserating with them, he points them to the absolute safety that they have in having eternal life. You might lose all earthly possessions. 
You might lose your life. You will never lose your salvation. Your heavenly inheritance, he says, is fixed and guaranteed and kept by divine power. No matter what. Now, it manifests itself in many ways. This divine life is manifest, and I'm going to give you maybe a handful of points, okay? If you're writing anything down, this would be the time. We are protected, let's include ourselves, we are protected by a hope that cannot fail. Here is evidence of this eternal life. Verse 3 we have been born again, that is new life, this is an eternal life, and it first possesses a living hope, a perpetual hope, a hope that cannot die. Everything connected to eternal life is also eternal. Everything connected to eternal life is permanent. In contrast to human hopes that fade and die, that ebb and flow, that come and go, here is a living hope, a hope that cannot die because it's a, it's a component of that eternal life that cannot die. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6.19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. Our hope can't die because it's a component of a life that cannot die. So we live with a constant living hope. Our hope never dies. Hope is that which anticipates promises to come not yet received. We live that way. Look, you have literally, you have literally set aside your entire life for something you can't see. You can't see heaven, you can't see God, you can't see spiritual reality, you have literally given up your life, literally said to yourself, I deny myself, I take up my cross, I follow Christ, I obey Him. You've given up everything for something you cannot see, someone you cannot see. You live in hope. You live in hope. You hope for the resurrection of the body. You hope for being delivered from sin. You hope for the transformation that comes when you leave this world and enter into the presence of Christ. We live in hope. That hope is alive. That's a living hope. And even in the hard times and the difficult times and under persecution, that hope is alive and vibrant. In fact, the more difficult the times, it seems as though the more the hope shines. And this is a justified hope. Because, look at verse 4, awaiting you is an inheritance, an inheritance. Well, what is your inheritance? Well, for one, I guess you could sum it up, you're going to be a joint heir with whom? With Christ. That means that all that is His is yours. All that is His is yours. And that inheritance is imperishable. Afthartos in the Greek, not capable of corruption, not liable to pass away, not able to be plundered by an enemy or an invading army. Our inheritance cannot be plundered, it cannot be stolen, it cannot be diminished, it cannot be tarnished, it cannot be corrupted by Satan, by demons, or anybody else. 
It is not only imperishable, it is undefiled. It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't absorb stains, defects, failures. It is also unfading, amarantas. It means it, it cannot lose its supernatural beauty. It never changes in its inherent glory. So we have this inheritance awaiting us that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it is reserved in heaven for you. Perfect past participle of tereo. It is now kept in heaven, guarded in heaven. The perfect form underlines the inheritance is already existing, presently and continually there, being guarded by God until you get there to take it. And it's in heaven, which is where you'd want it, right? That's the safe place. Because when you lay up treasure in heaven, Matthew 6, rust and moth don't corrupt and thieves don't break through and steal. Heaven will never be invaded. It'll never be invaded. In fact, that's kind of how the Bible ends, isn't it? Revelation 21, 27 tells us about heaven. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination lying shall ever come into it. Or chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city, the new Jerusalem in heaven. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices lying. All those people are outside. They never get into heaven. No one is to plunder heaven. So, you have a living hope. And what is your hope of a heavenly inheritance? that is there, that will never perish, never be defiled, never be diminished, and it's reserved for you. It's already there. And what is that? Well, obviously, it is Christ and all that is His. So, this eternal life, this persevering eternal life that powers through all of life, no matter how difficult, has as a component a living hope. Secondly, it has as a component a living faith, a living faith. Go to verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God, very important, underline it, through faith, through faith. We have been given eternal life. A component of that life is an eternal, everlasting, undying hope. And a second component is an eternal, undying faith. You don't believe for a while and then stop believing. This is not the kind of faith God has given us. By grace are you saved through faith. That faith is not of yourselves. It is what? Gift of God. The kind of faith He gives lasts. The kind of faith He gives perseveres. We are waiting for our hope to be realized and to receive a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, in the future. It's ready, it's prepared, it's it's present, it's at hand, it has been accomplished, it's protected, that's a military term, speaking of continuous protection, all that is ours laid up in heaven is held there for us, protected by the power of God, but through what means? Through faith. Through faith. Faith in God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is the instrument by which God 
protects us. I remember when I was reading the, writing the book, The Gospel According to Jesus, and I was trying to answer the theology that was saying you can actually be saved and completely lose your faith and deny Christ and become an unbeliever and you're still saved. No. No, that's why I wrote that book and a lot of other books, because we have very clear word here that our inheritance is protected by the power of God through faith. It is a faith that does not die. It is not a human faith. It is a supernatural faith which God himself preserves, protects, sustains, and maintains by his power. It's from God. It's given to us. It's a component of uh, our eternal life. Not only do we have a living hope and a living faith, an undying hope and an undying faith, But we also are protected by divine power. Look at verse 6. We saw that in verse 5, protected by the power of God. But let's let that unfold a little bit. In this you greatly rejoice in a a salvation already reserved for you that is waiting for you. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Um, We have those trials. But rather than uh, destroy uh, our faith, they reveal our faith. Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith. Now, let me just back out of that and, and say it this way. Trials prove the legitimacy of your faith. How do you know you have a true faith? When it's tried. If you had a superficial faith like the soil in Matthew 13 that had weeds that choked out before any fruit, that would be a superficial faith. Or if you had faith like the rocky ground where that looked like there was going to be a plant and life and the bedrock killed the plant before it could bear fruit, you would have a superficial faith. And our Lord says in that parable, Philipsis, pressure, trials, tribulation, choke the word. For false believers, trials reveal the falsehood. For true believers, trials reveal the reality. I mean, you you have a child that's sick, you have a child that may die, you have a spouse that may die, you hear you have cancer, you have friends that have cancer... You go through terrible issues in your life. You struggle economically, whatever it is. Life is very difficult. You can look at it from your own self, from the family, from beyond, from the world. You see what's going on. Uh, There can be very difficult trials. We all face them in a fallen world. Uh, Not only is the world fallen, it is falling. But for true believers, that becomes a test of their faith. And when you come through that like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? When you come through that like Peter, repentant, when you come through the other side of that, your faith has been proven. So that you could look at it this way. The greatest gift next to your salvation that God could ever give you, listen, the greatest gift next to your salvation that God could ever give you would be the assurance of that salvation, right? Right? Because... We want that assurance. Let me tell you how it comes. It comes when you come out the other side of a trial still fully believing. 
You don't question God because you have the real thing. So that that becomes the proof of your faith. Go back to verse 7 for a minute. Which is more precious than gold which is perishable. What isn't perishable is your faith. And when you know it's real, that's more precious than gold. What, what joy am I going to have in my life if I am saved but don't know it? I might as, I'm going to live my life without joy. I'm going to live my life in fear. So the Lord gives us an eternal salvation. He gives us a, a hope that cannot die, a faith that cannot die, a hope that will not fail, a faith that will not fail. And then He gives us power that will not fail so that we can go through the severest of trials and come out at the other end like Job and say, I had heard of you with the hearing of mine ear, but now my eye sees you and I repent in dust and ashes. And all of a sudden you have a new view of God and you become a much deeper, more profound worshiper. You don't come out of a trial with true faith, questioning God, running from God, turning your back on God. If you do, you're not a true believer. That's why James said, count it all joy when you fall into what? Trials. Because they become the proof ground of your faith. So that you know, you, you not only know that from Scripture you have received salvation, but you have the assurance of that salvation because your faith has gone through the test. The older you get, the more those tests and trials come into your life with your children and people around you. And, um, I, I know salvation is eternal from what the Bible says. But I also know my salvation is eternal. I know that mine is the real thing. And the proof of that has been that the faith that the Lord has granted to me has stood test after test after test after test. And you come out not less trusting, but more trusting. Not less thankful, but more thankful. And that's gold. That's gold. So you live and say, hey, I like you people. I'm glad to be here. But I don't want to be here one day longer than I need to. I want to stand up all the vegetarians and say, when you get to heaven, you're going to say, why didn't I eat meat? <laughs> Let's get there as quickly as we can, right? You're only eager to go to heaven if you know you're going there, right? So count it all joy when you fall into various trials because when you come out the other side with the stronger faith, you've just had proof, and that proof is pure gold. So we're protected. We're protected by the hope that cannot fade, by faith that cannot fade, and the power that cannot fade. It presses right straight through trials and out the other side. Back to verse 7. Even though the test is fiery, even though it's tested by fire, we come out the other side knowing that we have a faith that is going to take us to the day when the praise and the glory and the honor at the very revelation of Jesus Christ is given to us. Amazing. Amazing. We're going to be there at the end 
We know Philippians 1 6 that he that begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I look at my life and I say, How do I know my how do I know I'm really saved? I have a hope that will not die. It shines brighter every day. I have a faith that will not die. Through every test and out the other side, it grows stronger and stronger. I have a power from God that literally takes me through every issue in life and delivers back to me a greater confidence in God's working. Living hope, divine protection, manifest in strength through trials is the pledge of eternal glory. So we look at our lives and everything, all those components are, are, are eternal, permanent. I'll suggest two more. We're protected also by an eternal life that manifests a love that cannot fail. A love that cannot fail. Verse 8, though you haven't seen Him, you love Him. Though you haven't seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. There is an irrepressible love in the life of a believer. There is an irrepressible love in the life of a believer. I like to say that the thing which distinguishes Christians is they love Christ. That was the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas resented Christ. Peter loved him. We have an irrepressible, inexhaustible love. And Jesus, when he finally got to Peter in Galilee, you remember at the end of John chapter 21, what did he say to Peter three times? Do you what? Love me. And Peter, who had stumbled and bumbled again, said, Lord, yes, I love you. Jesus said again the second time, do you love me? He's given him three times to repent for the three points of denial earlier. And finally, Peter reaches out and says, Lord, you know my heart. You know I love you. A true believer can say, look down inside. You know I love you. There is an irrepressible love for Christ. You don't have to manipulate worship. You don't have to manipulate expression. You don't have to manipulate that love at all. All you have to do is bring people together like we've been doing this morning, throw some words up on the screen that celebrate what the Lord has done for us and who He is, and we sing from the bottom of our hearts, don't we? It's an irrepressible love. It's a component of that eternal life. Of course He loved His Lord. His faith was purified and strengthened. He went through the terrible pain of sinful denials, momentary denials from which He repented. And of course you know I love you. In 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. And then, I already read it in verse 8, another component of this eternal life, this persevering life, is a joy that cannot fail. Here are these believers under all kinds of pressure, persecution. Um, they're, they're aliens, they're... They're in a pagan world that is extremely hostile to them and even dangerous. And you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. They're literally unbounded in their joy under this persecution. Under this persecution. They are rejoicing. These are superlatives here. You greatly rejoice with joy that can't even find words. It's just full of exaltation, full of celebration. 
So you look at your life and you say, oh, how do I know I'm a Christian? Because you have an irrepressible hope. You have an irrepressible faith. You have an irrepressible strength going through trials. You have an irrepressible love for Christ, and you have an irrepressible joy. This is all manifestation of that eternal life. And it brings us, verse 9 says, to the final outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's not saying the salvation in its initial sense. That's already happened. He's saying the full salvation in its consummate sense. It brings us to the final salvation of our souls. The salvation you presently have is the salvation from the penalty of sin. Christ bore it. But someday you will not only be saved from the penalty of sin, you'll be saved from the presence of it. And that salvation is nearer now than when you believed. And that final salvation is a salvation to which you will persevere to the very end. God Himself perfects, confirms, strengthens, and establishes His own children. He sustains us with an eternal life that cannot die by His power, by the Son's intercession, the Spirit's intercession, so that we will, in hope, faith, love, joy, power, endure, and persevere to the end, to final glory. This is all of grace, is it not? What a great salvation. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to consider the greatness of your kindness, mercy, tenderheartedness, compassion, and grace to us as unworthy sinners. We thank you that you have given us this salvation, which is so glorious, so undeserved. May our lives be literally filled filled with gratitude for the gift that you have given us. And I pray, Lord, for anyone who might be here now who is wondering about all of this and admitting that this, this is not something that they know. Graciously, Lord, kindly, mercifully, grant that true salvation to that soul for your glory. And may we live in exuberant gratitude for the eternal life that you've given us through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.